1: Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard, Bruce, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm great. WrestleMania six is what's going on. Dude, I am fired up. This is a show I've been looking forward to for a long time. But before we get to it, let's talk about some follow up from last week's XFL episode. You took issue with something. So go ahead.
2: Air your grievances. Well, first of all, I get some some tweets, something probably I think you actually forwarded to me that some guy sent you a message saying that Bubba Dean, who we talked about on the XFL show last week, was his uncle or, or some kind of relation or whatever. And that he was actually he being Bubba Dean was actually scared shitless of operating the Bubba cam at the XFL. And I do take exception to that because it is a complete fabrication and total bullshit. And I actually called Bubba Dean and asked him who the hell this guy was and it was some jerk-off that he had maybe met once in his life, but that in no way, shape, or form was Bubba Dean afraid to get on the field and operate the Bubba Cam. He couldn't because of insurance reasons and because of the story I told last week, him getting his teeth kicked out by Stone Cold Steve Austin. And he reminded me of the guy that was on the 30 for 30 telling the story, the yeah. cameraman. Yeah. Was actually a guy that tried to organize all the cameramen the weekend of the first game to try to get them to do a walkout and hold Vince up for more money. Oh, my gosh. So that's the kind of people that the 30 for 30 folks got to interview and tell these bullshit stories. but. Anybody knows Bubba Dean knows, knows the truth, and, and that was that just pissed me off because it was just one million percent false. All right,
1: let's get moving. Anything on the blimp from the XFL? Nope. Uh, any memories of Opie and Anthony doing pregame shows for the XFL?
2: The only time that I can remember ever uh, being around Opie and Anthony doing that was the New York game, but other than that, I don't really remember.
1: Do you recall how the XFL became involved with the six-day movie? I do not. Uh, Meltzer said the New Jersey hitman name and being pink and black was a shot at Bret
2: Hart, and Brett actually sued over it. Uh, what do you say about that? Well, I guess Meltzer knows everything. I don't know. Did he win a suit? Did he get any money? I don't know. I don't either. So I. So you I didn't you yet. didn't
1: think that calling it the hitman and making it pink and black was not anything to do with Bret Hart? No, because we have hitmen <laughs> from New Jersey. A fucking idiot. But right now, let's go ahead and follow up on Zeus. Uh, I made a mistake talking about buys in 1989. I meant buy rates, not number of buys, so my apologies. Uh, Do you remember the idea behind the octagon ring in the No Holds Barred movie, Bruce? They did this long before the UFC did eight sides, or even TNA did six sides.
2: You know, I really don't. I think it was just a way to be futuristic and to be different than a traditional uh, wrestling ring, unlike, you know, TNA. And, and you know, I'm sorry. I got to digress. You brought it up. We usually don't talk about the current product out there today, but some folks brought to my attention some tweets by one of the announcers on uh, the TNA product, uh, Josh Matthews, calling himself the greatest announcer of all time. Did you catch any of this? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I just had to laugh, folks. No, he's not the greatest announcer of all time. He's not even the best announcer in uh, TNA or Impact Wrestling, whatever the hell they're calling it right now.
1: Nothing so. nothing worth talking about there. Uh, let's no. talk about the rumor and in innuendo that the limo driver that Hulk confronted in that famous scene we talked about was actually intended to have a resemblance to Richard Belzer, and this was supposedly a rib to have Hogan beat up a guy and make him shit his pants that looks like Belzer. Uh, before you address that, briefly explain who Belzer was and the background of why folks may think this is
2: a rib, and then is it a rib? Well, Richard Belzer was a stand-up comedian who had a talk show at the time in the early 80s, had Hogan and Mr. T on as a guest in his talk show, and of course had to ask the question that all those guys liked to ask back in the day. Well, in wrestling fake? So Hogan put him in a front face lock, choked him out, and when he let him go, he went limp, fell on the back of his head, and sued Hogan for a lot of money. But I wasn't involved in casting for the movie. I have no idea if it's a rib, and believe it or not, I don't think the people live their lives just going around wanting to rib people all the time.
1: All right, Bruce, it's finally here. What happened when the WWF presented their very first international WrestleMania? It's WrestleMania six. And man, I am fired up about this. It happened on April 1st, 1990 from the Sky Dome in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. The building is now the Rogers Center, and it was opened back in June of 89 at a cost of $570 million. Uh, It was a state-of-the-art building at the time and would go on to host the Toronto Blue Jays baseball team, the Toronto Argonauts of the Canadian Football League, and the Toronto Raptors of the NBA. The Buffalo Bills in the NFL even played an annual game there for several years. Uh, Anyway, the WWF announced attendance that night at 67,678, and that would be the record for that building, a record that would stand for 12 years until WrestleMania 18, and that time they drew 68,237 fans. Bruce, this is the uh, first WrestleMania that's held outside of the United States. Was the lure... This new badass building, was that one of the key factors in deciding to take the show to Canada? Because it feels like that's kind of one of Vince's M.O.'s. Whenever a big building opens, how soon can we get WrestleMania there?
2: Sure. It was that, plus the fact that Toronto was traditionally a great market for the WWF. We had done a stadium show there in 1987 and done huge business with Hogan and Orndorff. So Toronto was always a great market for us, and they had this big, beautiful dome with a retractable roof. I think it was the first retractable roof building of its kind, and why not? Yeah, it was a great opportunity to go in and fill that son of a bitch.
1: Uh, Who would have been the key people in making a deal with the Sky Dome back then?
2: Ed Cohen, who booked the buildings. Ed Cohen, Basil DeVito, who was the head of promotions, they're the ones that, spearheaded the WrestleMania promotions. Also, Bob Collins, who later on became Mr. WrestleMania on the promotion side. Uh, were there
1: local promoters being used at this time for a show like this?
2: Jack Tunney, who was the Toronto promoter. So Tunney and Billy Red Lions in Canada, they helped out tremendously. They were, uh, they were the local promoters of sorts.
1: I want to talk about Tunney, Tunney a little bit, uh, later, but would Carl DeMarco have been involved with this? And if not, when did he come
2: into the fold? Carl DeMarco was still carrying guys' bags in at the time. No, Carl had nothing to do with this.
1: Okay. Didn't expect that answer. Uh, Do you remember anything specific about uh, making the announcement in the market or maybe some of the different ways you guys tried to promote the event locally? We've talked a little bit about uh, all the promotion that went into the Royal Rumble in 1997. Do you remember anything specific about this market for WrestleMania Six in Toronto?
2: There, there really wasn't, other than the first time being in that huge stadium with a wrestling event. And that was the big push to have the largest wrestling event in the world in the Sky Dome you know, for that year, that time. We had obviously done Detroit. Detroit in proximity to Toronto was also close, so we knew the market could bear it. And we just wanted to go in and make a big splash in a beautiful new building.
1: And, uh, you guys did make a big splash indeed. And to make sure you did, you did the ultimate challenge special on TV, uh, to build this in the final week leading to the show. It aired on March 25th, 1990, and it was positioned as like an international edition of primetime wrestling. And they announced it was shot 1836 feet high at the sparkles club above Toronto, which made for a cool backdrop for gorilla in the brain. Uh, Did you produce this? Uh, Tell us about this building and uh, where it was shot.
2: Uh, I did produce it, but you know what? I I didn't realize where the hell it was until you just talked about it, but it was a, it's like the big, I don't know, it's a needle or whatever. It's like an answer to Seattle space needle, but. Thank you. That's what I was looking for. We, We just went up there so that you could have a beautiful view of Toronto and it was very recognizable and gave a nice view and a nice backdrop. the special uh it's called the cn tower would you have been the person who uh would do
1: like location scouting for shots like this for you know shoots for like prime time
2: no that would have been nelson Swegler, who was the head of production and he would have gone in and secured that spot for us we were just looking for a location piece to be able to promote toronto and the weekend in wrestlemania coming up now,
1: something we haven't talked about much on the show so far is the greatness that is Mean Gene Okerlund. Uh As a kid and even now, I love watching him from the inside of what looks like a control center as it gives updates and throws to various video clips. Uh, where were those shot, and how was Mean Gene to work with on those? And do you have any funny blooper stories you can share? Because there seems to be lots of rumors out there that there's fun blooper footage floating around of Mean Gene.
2: Oh, I'm sure there is. There, there's probably – there's a lot of crazy footage out there with me and Gene. But Gene was great. Gene was a pro's pro. And you could have one meeting with Gene, go over the points. He would make a few notes here and there. But off the cuff, there was nobody better than me and Gene Okerlund. He knew everybody's gimmick. He could adapt to any situation He asked where the All-Americans and the stuff that was done in the control room. Most of that was done in Edit One in Stanford, Connecticut. Later on, we did it uh, on a green screen and just had the control room behind him. But for the most part, all of that stuff was actually shot in the Edit One suite. That's cool. Yeah, but Okerlund was great because Okerlund had a great rapport with uh, the entire crew. He had a good rapport with all of the talent and was quick on his feet. You rarely found him at a loss for words, at least not that wasn't intentional. But yeah, there's uh, (laughs) probably a few reels out there that don't ever need to see the light of day.
1: Well, the most famous two that everybody talks about are uh, Royal Rumble 92, where he yells at someone off camera, put that cigarette out. I know you weren't there. Uh, And then the SummerSlam skit where the SummerSlam sign falls off and he yells, fuck it. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, that was
2: classic. <laughs> and, and here's the great part about that. That was pre-taped. That was pre-taped and they redid it, but yet the bad take made it on the air. That's hilarious. That was the best part of that. But there there was a a infamous uh, birthday present for me and Gene one year in the studio that allegedly made it to tape of a local Gentleman's Club. Um, Performer? Yeah. Performer, thank you. That was the word I was searching for that came and gave Gene a a present. Nothing sexual went on, but it was just, you know, one of those classic mean Gene moments.
1: Yeah, I mean, a stripper at work, nothing sexual at all.
2: (laughs) Uh, It was back in the day when you could do those things, okay?
1: Of course, we got lots of promos uh, building for the matches on the card inside of the special. And, of course, that includes Hogan and Warrior. Uh, But the thing that sticks out to me the most is the contract signing. Uh, This is set up and shot very similar to the way Andre Hogan was for WrestleMania 3, except what the guys are wearing is hilarious. Uh, Warrior has on street clothes but face paint, and I think he has, like, bandanas around his wrist. Meanwhile, Hogan's wearing the bandana, the torn tank top, and wrist tape. I guess he didn't want to sprain his wrist signing. Who tells them to wear what here, or does anybody care, and they just show up and you just shoot it?
2: I'm not sure that there was that much detail put into what they were going to wear. Vince wanted him in character, so Warrior would be with face paint, and Hogan is always going to look like Hogan looks. Uh, did Warrior always have
1: an obsession with these long duster jackets? He's sporting the Polly Dangerously Special here.
2: You know, I think you mentioned it. Yeah, I kind of did. <laughs> uh, where was that shot? Is that shot at uh, Titan Towers? Well, that was long before Titan Towers, man. That was shot 1055 Summer Street in the main uh, conference room.
1: Uh, Who else is at the table besides Hogan, Warrior, and
2: Tunney? There's two other guys. Do you remember? The the guys that were on camera, I believe that was, um, God, why has his name slipped my mind? I had it beforehand. I knew uh, he was a limo driver. Jim was his name, and I can't remember his last name. And then the other one, I think, was Basil DeBito.
1: Okay. So there you go.
2: Jim Stewart. Yay, I got it. Uh,
1: They do multiple shots uh, where it's put from the end of the table, and then later they do, like, head-on shots with both of the guys. Did you produce this segment?
2: Did you shoot this? I was there, but Vince was the one directing and producing the whole thing. Kerwin Silfies was there, too.
1: What did you think of the decision to shoot it from the – Perspective of Warrior and Hogan looking at the other guy without ever acknowledging the other cameras.
2: Again, it was shot like a television show. Okay. I thought it looked
1: good. Uh, Let's take a minute now and talk about Jack Tunney since he's there. A lot of us grew up with Jack Tunney as our original version of The Authority. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about his background, his actual role in the company, how he became the on screen figurehead, and then how he finished up with the company.
2: Jack Tunney was the nephew of the legendary Toronto promoter, uh, Frank Tunney. And Frank and Vince McMahon Sr. were longtime old friends, and Frank was a mainstay in the National Wrestling Alliance and later the WWWF. But Jack inherited that business and promoted in Toronto, and he became the figurehead of the WWF as their president. I- I don't know what the reasoning was other than I think he just looked presidential.
1: Okay. Now the show itself years later, it came out, uh, that edge was at this show in the 11th row, sporting some Hulk Hogan gear, brother. Uh, do you remember talking to him about this show in particular?
2: You know, I know that he was there. Yeah. I've talked to him about him being there as a fan, but nothing really more than that. I think we even featured that in an edge video one time.
1: Because he tagged with Hogan, and they were tag champs for a minute. Right. Yeah. Uh, What about Canyon? I think he was there as a fan, too. Did you ever have a conversation with him about that? No, never did. Uh, I have no idea where to put this, so I'll just ask it here. The Torch reported that Paul Heyman was offered a job with the WWF and a start date of March 15th, but he turned it down, opting to stay on the independent scene. Is that fact or fiction? It sounds like total bullshit that Heyman would have put out there, at least from my perspective.
2: Total fiction.
1: Okay. Um, the show starts with, uh, different images being drawn in a black galaxy type background. And this is Vince doing the voiceover here in a classic Vince way. If you haven't seen this, you should go pause this right now and watch it and just type in WrestleMania six opening, or it's on the network. Uh, but Vince proclaims the two most powerful forces in the universe, Hulk Hogan and the ultimate warrior prepared to explode champion versus champion title versus title. It's the ultimate challenge. It's WrestleMania.
2: Conrad, please. that's, That's not what it was. Upon the examination of the galaxies of space, images begin to appear. Images of strange and powerful forces. But of all the forces of the universe, the two most powerful, Hulk Hogan and the ultimate warrior, prepare to explode. Champion versus champion. Title for title. It's the ultimate challenge. It's Wrestlemania!
1: Thank you for that. We have lots of happy listeners right now. The way I remember it. Uh, Gorilla Monsoon and Jesse Ventura are doing commentary for this event, and lots of folks have a different opinion on this, but what say you? Do you prefer Gorilla and Bobby or Gorilla and Jesse as a broadcast team like this?
2: Gorilla and Bobby.
1: Wow, okay. I prefer them in the studio, but I kind of like Jesse uh, on the matches, but maybe that's just me.
2: No, I like Jesse too. I just
1: like Bobby better. Uh, I've always been curious. Did Jesse Ventura ever prepare for a show? It seems like he is captain <laughs> wing And I don't know anything about this, but I know I put some prep in and it feels like he's just witty and rolls with it.
2: He just rolls with it pretty much. Yeah, he, he would show up to production meetings, he would take notes from time to time, but Jesse had in his head what Jesse was gonna do in his head. And it usually worked out pretty good. I think so, yeah. I you know, I, I think some guys are better that way. Yeah. I think some people just are gonna roll off of it, feed me and I'll react. And if I'm too prepared, it's gonna suck.
1: It's worth mentioning, this is Ventura's last WWF pay per view where he would do commentary. Uh, can you tell us what led to that relationship going south or did Jesse just think he had other opportunities at that time and get a little too big for his britches? I say that because around this time he and Piper had just done a pilot for ABC called tag team that's available in your Google machine if you'd like to check it out, but did that play into the decision or how did that whole
2: thing go sideways? I think Jesse always felt that he was more valuable than other people saw him in particular events. So, Jesse did have a lot of other opportunities at the time, and he and Vince always argued over money and pay. So, it was just kind of coming to a head. And shortly after that, I think Jesse was the proud property of WCW.
1: It came out in January that Vince had decided to cancel his relationship with Viewer's Choice, who was the largest or one of the largest pay per view providers here in the United States. And that caused quite the stir in the cable industry. But not too long afterwards, uh, he starts his own little smear campaign against them, demanding that WWF people call and complain to their local cable providers because they're not going to get their WWF pay-per-views anymore. Uh, And in the end, Vince has to fold and makes up with viewers' choice. Uh, The Torch reports that Vince caved right before the Royal Rumble when he wasn't able to pull this off on his own. The idea being he would go try to produce, sell, and distribute the pay-per-views on his own, just eliminating the middleman and therefore keeping more of the profits. Uh, but he didn't prove successful in that endeavor. Uh, and so they report that they had a long-term deal, like 7 or 10 years or so, and the WWF is only getting 40% of the revenue, while the other 60% is being shared between viewer Choice and the individual cable providers. What really happened here? And what was the strategy, as you recall? Was there really a consideration of trying to do it on his own, or was this just a negotiating ploy all along?
2: No, sure. This actually goes back to when people talk about Vince wanting to have his own network and being able to distribute all of his own television, his own pay-per-view events, exactly what he's doing right now. took him a lot longer to get there, but that is what Vince had envisioned, and he felt that the cuts from viewers' choice was too much – to there to them he felt that he should be getting a bigger percentage of that and later on he did but at this time he figured if he pulled out the WWF was responsible for the majority of that they're such a giant money. in pay-per-view business that they felt like they right. could call their shot exactly so they said okay you know fuck you we'll just pull our programming off and see how you do see how you do without it the problem with that is when they realized well, without them, you're going to get to a, a whole lot less people. So, yeah, eventually K but they did eventually uh, get a new agreement with, with everybody and change the whole premise.
0: Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good. Companies like Bank of America, which just earned the Just Capital seal. Bank of America is ranked number one for ongoing commitment to their workers with initiatives like Sharing Success, which awarded 97% of their teammates additional compensation, nearly all in stock. This is the program's seventh consecutive year, awarding more than $4.8 billion in total. Visit justcapital.com to learn how a just business is a better business. Furnished by Just Capital. What companies would you want to work for? Just Capital is a nonprofit that tracks which companies are a force for good
1: uh Robert Goulet sang the Canadian national anthem to start the event. Tell our younger listeners who this is and why he was chosen to do this.
2: Robert goulet is a Canadian singing sensation is <laughs> how the hell how the hell would you describe his his brand of music classical nah. I don't even really know how to how to describe it awful but, i would I would call it awful Well, he was a great singer, I guess, for your parents' parents. Um, but his claim to fame was, and the reason that we had him here, he had attempted to sing the star Spangled Banner at a football event or a baseball event and butchered it. He forgot the words to the star Spangled Banner and he refused to sing live for a long time after that. So this was his coming out party, if you will. That's awesome. And so it was in Canada. And I'll tell you, now this was a rib. Um, I had to go out and I met with him and his wife, Vera, a lovely lady. And and Bob Goulet, man, he was a class guy. We had some really classy celebrities for this. But uh, Goulet was just a class individual, really, really nice with his wife, Vera. And... The Skydome had, at the time, I think the world's largest Titan, we call it TitanTron now, but like the largest jumbotron. scoreboard Jumbotron. Yeah. And we told Goulez, don't worry, just face the TitanTron and we're going to put the words up on the on the Jumbotron for you so that if you get lost, they're going to be right there for you and also would get the audience singing along with him. All right. Because they're Canadians. And we started to laugh thinking that wouldn't it be great just midway through because he's got his confidence that he's got the words up there in front of him just drop the words off of the Jumbotron. Did you? No. I was
1: going to say that would have been fucking amazing. I'm disappointed you didn't.
2: Well, but but here's the thing. There's a point in the song, and when I watched it today, watching it back, there's a point in the song where you see the look on his face where he knows he's got it. And he just gets his big smile on his face, says, Oh Canada And he's got it. And we just started laughing, going, He's so happy right now <laughs> because he's not looking at the Titantron anymore. He's singing, he's belting it out. And it was and his wife was backstage crying and it was it was incredible.
1: That's a cool story. Um hard to transition to this here. Uh, this is a 14-fucking-match card, not counting the dark match, which was Paul Roma defeating the Brooklyn Brawler. Uh, we've talked about it before, but carry us through the thinking of presenting a show with so many damn matches on it.
2: Get everybody on the card. Is Get that... people in extravaganza. You know, that used to be a big thing. Oh, my God, there's going to be 15 matches, 20 matches. No, no, Those, no, no. It used no. to be a big old promoting uh You're missing a package. word
1: in there. There's going to be how many blank matches?
2: I don't know which word am I
1: big motherfucker big. They used big Guys, yeah. ten big matches fifteen Gosh. big matches twenty gigantic matches yeah if be I right. was a if I was a promoter I would have nine big matches and one little one in parentheses midgets <laughs> um help me understand here oh, little people sorry. Shouldn't have said that. Uh, Dylan, he said it, not me. Eh, it is what it is. Carries (laughs) through. He says midget. Dylan says midget. Okay. So, I felt justified in saying it, but I shouldn't have. Um, Why not? I mean, there's two schools of thinking here. On the one hand, you can get as many people on the show as you can, but on the other hand, you can put forth the best matches possible Why wouldn't you try to put forth the best matches possible for pay-per-view?
2: Because Vince felt that getting everybody on the card, having more matches, and giving people a giant extravaganza, that people, especially for WrestleMania, and at that time and in that era, they were more about the sizzle than they were the steak.
1: Do you agree with the call then?
2: I don't know that we had that many guys that could really have great long matches that people would have cared. And it was more about the big pre- presentation and the extravaganza and hoopla of it all. Uh,
1: here's a trivia question for you. Who was the first guy through the curtain this night? No clue. Here's a hint. It was the ref for the first dark match. Well, the only dark match. Still no clue. His last name was presented as Ste, S-T-E. Oh who? Shane McMahon. Oh, okay. Shane McMahon was the first guy through the curtain to see the WrestleMania six crowd and he worked a dark match as a referee. I thought that was awesome. Uh the first televised match was Hall of Famer, Coco Beware versus Rick the Model Martell. I guess I'd forgotten all about this, but the model character originally debuted with a heel manager, Slick. Now, of course, he's long gone by
2: this point. Why was Slick the guy for Martel, and why was it dropped? I think originally there was a little bit of fear of Martel cutting a promo. But once Martel got into the model gimmick, he became a lot more confident and didn't really need the mouthpiece.
1: Uh, Now, Bruce, if I would have asked you in April of 1990, which of these guys would be in the Hall of Fame 27 years later, would you have ever in a fucking million years picked Coco over Martel?
2: Truthfully, I would have picked both guys, but I would have picked Martel long before Coco.
1: Yeah, now I should mention, Coco has one hell of a dropkick, and if you haven't (laughs) seen it in a while, go watch it. This match in particular, it stands out. Dude could work for sure. I'm not trying to disparage him at any point, but... I just thought Martel uh he's on another level at least in my mind. Bruce, do you think if Coco was 8 inches taller, his career would have been different in the
2: WWF? Without a doubt. Coco had so much charisma, so much talent,
1: and he could and work.
2: He could work his ass off. But you're right. If he was 8 inches taller, his career would have been a lot different.
1: That's a shame, but I mean that's reality in the company at the time. Uh, Martell wins the match by submission in three minutes and 51 seconds with the Boston Crab. It's interesting to know here that this is Rick Martell's first singles match at WrestleMania, turning heel the year prior at WrestleMania five, walking out his tag partner, Tito Santana, in your opinion, Arriba, Arriba. in your opinion, uh, who did better as a single after strike force Santana or Martell
2: after strike force Martell did better. I
1: think I agree since they broke up a year later. Or a year earlier, rather, why not just try to build towards Santana Martel here at WrestleMania, rather than have it against Coco and a seemingly another blow off match. That's insignificant with Tito later in the card.
2: Well, they had done so much in that year that they felt that they had already done it to death.
1: Uh, after the match, Mean Gene interviews the world tag team champions, the Colossal Connection, Andre the Giant and Haku with their manager, Bobby Heenan. Uh, And right after that, Sean Mooney interviews Demolition. I've got a question about Bobby's uh, promos like this. In my head, he's so awesome at this. He's probably like one-take Johnny on these promos. I can't imagine you guys have to shoot him multiple times. Would you agree with that?
2: We never really shot anybody multiple times unless it was a major screw-up. So if they stumbled or they fumbled, personally, I like that because it makes them human and it makes it real. Yeah. When the delivery is so damn perfect that it feels like they're reading something, I just don't like it. I I like the natural breaths. I like the fumble and and, and fuck over for words. I I know – well, you know. uh, Well, you (laughs) you know. know. That people stumble over their words when they have natural conversations, and that's what I enjoyed about it. But we didn't do a lot of retakes on these kind of promos because the guys felt them and they were in their character and would usually nail it. Uh,
1: how much earlier in the afternoon would these have been shot? Uh, I feel like uh, that's worth mentioning because this show takes place on a Sunday, but back then the pay-per-views were a lot earlier than they are now. So this is airing on an afternoon rather than an evening, right? I don't really
2: remember. Was it? I I, I don't really remember, but I, I, and the other thing is like on, um, at WrestleMania Five, we shot some of the pre-tapes the day before, and I believe that at WrestleMania Six we shot a few of the pre-tapes the day before as well. So some were, but then there were also a lot that were live. Obviously, the map, the the post-match interviews and things like that. But we would just set up. We didn't have a production meeting that day, not like the big production meetings that they have now. Uh, I had the production meeting earlier the night before, and we got to work and we're ready to roll. So we probably did it early in the morning to answer your question.
1: Uh, we do a demolition promo here and every demolition promo from this time cracks me up. Uh, so the next match of course is Andre and Haku, uh, defending the titles against demolition acts and smash. And as a reminder, Andre and Haku won the titles from demolition in December uh so the decision I feel like is probably made to put Andre in tag matches to help hide some of his physical limitations uh but still feature him on the shows. Is that fair to say?
2: Yeah, his his health was declining, his back was declining and he just wasn't moving around. He he had a hard time. He was uncomfortable. So it was it was time for Andre to move on and Haku, good work. I forgot how just damn good Haku well, Haku was I say, great. I watch him and say, damn, he was he was a hell of a worker.
1: Why was Haku the guy to be paired with Andre? Were they friends in real life? Did he pick him? Did somebody uh, put them together? Who sees that?
2: They were friends in real life, and I think Vince just recognized Haku as a guy that could go in and pick up that load. And people are—, are they're going to forgive Andre, and they're going to accept Haku. Uh, any stories or
1: memories of them traveling together or working together that stand out to you all these years later?
2: Well, Andre always traveled by himself. When I say by himself, he traveled with his crew of Timmy White and Arnold Skolan, sometimes Pat Patterson. And Haku kind of kept to himself and with the island guys. So there, there wasn't a whole lot of them, but, you know, you've, you've heard all the Andre stories. Sure. Of, traveling in the van and and drinking two cases of beer before he even gets to dinner. I want wine. Uh,
1: It's obvious Andre's hurting in this match. Even by the way, he tries to break up a pinfall. Uh, How bad was Andre feeling physically here? There's rumors in the torch that he's
2: being wheeled around airports earlier in the year. Yeah, I don't I don't know about that. He was hurting, but he was hurting. He was in bad shape. He had a hard time getting up and down. His knees were shot. It was painful to watch, and it was just kind of sad because you go back and you watch a young Andre that moved like a lion and then seeing him struggle, and you, he stays close to the ropes so that he can hold on to the ropes to get his balance. And it, it's just sad. It's sad. Uh, I wish it had ended on a higher note a little bit earlier.
1: Let's talk about something happier for a minute. Um, this is absurd, but I love it. Uh, I am a huge Demolition fan, and I have always loved these little ring carts that the guys rode to the ring in uh, for WrestleMania 3 and then again at WrestleMania 6. Who's driving the carts? The ring crew guys. Uh, this is a modified scissor lift with a skirt on it. Is that right?
2: Um, the ones in Toronto were yes. The ones in Pontiac were almost like golf carts, but the ones in, in Toronto were essentially yes. A a scissor lift. Tony Chimmel was driving one of the ones in Toronto. There you go. That's what I wanted to hear. Uh, do you not
1: think it's a little hysterical that we've got guys named demolition, And they're Axe and Smash, and they've covered themselves in black leather and spikes. And now they're riding to the ring in an elevated golf cart. (laughs) How badass are you? We're Demolition. We're Axe and Smash. We're going to fuck you up. Here comes the Axe.
2: Here comes the Smasher. We're Demolition. Walking Disaster. I don't know that. And we're going
1: to kick your ass as soon as we get off this fucking golf cart. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this and the way they're kind of higher than the rest of the crowd, it feels like an... uh, like a fucked up S&M
2: float in a Macy's parade. Remind me to talk about uh, the barbarians entrance on the scissor lift when we get there later on. And this has got to be brutal for cameraman
1: too, because you see multiple shots where the guys on the ground are having to walk backwards with the camera lifted all the way above their head and just hope to God they're fucking getting the shot. Yeah, they were good. They knew what they had uh demolition wins the match and regains the belts after about nine and a half minutes axe pins haku after their elbow drop finishing move uh and after the match heenan seems to start blaming andre for the loss getting in his face and yelling at him including the phrase i'm the fucking boss which the microphones pick up do you remember there being a reaction to this backstage that that slipped out
2: no, and knowing Bobby, he probably didn't say fucking. He probably said fudging or, or, or or something. No, Cause Bobby was very cognizant of stuff like that. He would say, you know, like, I don't give a Shia and make you think he said that. Um, but it was, you go back and watch that. And Bobby, just being Bobby, good God, he was great here. The, sad part was when Andre went to slap and he missed Heenan, and he missed and thank God, Bobby didn't sell it. Yeah. And, and Bobby held his ground and he knew another one was coming, but Andre being Andre and loving Bobby as much as he did, didn't whack the shit out of him. Didn't want to hurt him. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's, you know, Andre could be very gentle if he liked you and wanted to.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, Heenan does his best here to make it look believable. And when he's punched, he sells it like a giant has punched him uh, it
2: like a drunk man.
1: I don't think he even gets enough love for the bumps he took as a manager. Where do you rank Bobby all time? Number one. I agree. Uh, this is actually Andre's last televised match with the WWF and he would continue to do some international tours as a part of tag matches and continue to make some appearances for the WWF, but this was his last televised match. Um, Did you guys know going into this, this was going to be his last match
2: or was that just apparent when you saw it? No, it was intended to be his last match for a while. And there was an attempt made to bring Andre back after WrestleMania seven. But he was on crutches by then. He, he did. No, actually he, he wasn't on crutches at seven. He was still moving around right after seven shortly thereafter. He, he was on the crutches, but He wasn't feeling well, and he was having a hard, harder and harder time getting around every day. So, the idea was bring him, let him get some rest, bring him back in a in a feature role, and maybe get two to three appearances out of him a year.
1: Um, it feels like you know the plan here was certainly to turn him babyface just so he could finish as a babyface and do the appearance gigs. Were you watching this match with Vince and Gorilla? Do you remember what his reaction is to how how bad shape Andre's in, and then missing the paintbrush slaps with Heenan? I mean, he gets a pass because of who he is, right?
2: Right, and Gorilla position was a lot different place back then. That was essentially me <laughs> with a headset on and a stopwatch talking to the truck. So, Gorilla wasn't the hangout spot that it is now with, with all the monitors and everything. It was me with one monitor and a table. So, where does
1: Vince want to show? Out there.
2: Vince would either watch it from, from another monitor or uh, in his office or maybe from the curtain. Uh, the Torch
1: reports that the WWF gave Andre a finish date of April 15th in Bloomington, Minnesota, but Andre no showed. Um, who tells Andre they're wrapping him up? How did he take it? Was he upset, and did he no-show in protest,
2: in your opinion? Well, I don't know that that's true. I don't, I don't believe that that's true. Andre may have missed a shot, but like I said, the idea was always for Andre to have the match at WrestleMania, do the babyface turn, take some time off, and then there was going to be an attempt to bring him back and, and feature him a couple times a year.
1: Uh, it was just announced that Bill Simmons is going to do a documentary on Andre for HBO and you can bet when it comes out, we will have a companion piece of sorts to follow it much like we did for the XFL. Um, in the meantime, can you give us a taste and tell us any other Andre story, Bruce? Nobody ever gets tired of those.
2: you know my andre stories of drinking stories and it was always an honor and a privilege to be able to be included at the bar when the boss was holding court and if andre was was at the bar and you were you were there you were drinking and it was it, it was always interesting as well because they would make a last call and you would try and get, could I get two beers, you know, or could I get two drinks? And they'd always, no, you can only have one, you know, last call. Okay, well, we, we might give you two. With Andre, I want 14 vodka soda. He wants 15 Jack and Coke. I need 24 beers. And there was no argument. <laughs> Bartender would just line this shit up. And then we would sit there and drink until everything was gone, and then there's you know there's the classic story of Andre passing out one time at the, I believe it was called the Washington Inn in Hamburg or Allentown, Pennsylvania, where he passed out in the, in the lobby of the hotel. No one could wake him up or move him, so they just took uh, several uh, tablecloths from the diner and put him over Andre and let him sleep it off in the lobby. (laughs) What are you going to do? Giant sleeping. I'm tired. I go sleep now. Uh, The Torch reports that after uh,
1: WrestleMania, Heenan is going to replace Andre with Jimmy Snuka, forming a new Islanders team with Haku. Uh, Bruce, was this ever discussed, or is the Torch full of
2: shit? Torch is probably full of shit. I never heard that, not to my knowledge, no.
1: Earthquake is then interviewed by Mean Gene, and he actually has a really long, I guess seemingly very scripted promo. Uh, He refers to himself as the only natural disaster in the WWF. Uh, When did you guys know he was going to be the guy to work a big program with Hogan, and would Hogan have handpicked him?
2: I believe Hogan did handpick him because he was a big working bastard. And, you know, it says here that the you said the promo seems scripted. Quake John Tenta was just one of those guys that gave a lot of thought to his character and put a lot of thought into his promos. Right, he knew what he was going to do. He thought about it a lot and had a really good idea what the hell he was going to say. So that was just that was just Tenta. He he was another one that was. As far as working with him creatively, he was a joy to work with because he kind of came across as kind of gruff and rough. But what a nice guy.
1: Uh, Considering Earthquake had started getting some momentum by that point, uh, why wouldn't you guys try to program him with Warrior for the title? Doesn't it make sense that having Warrior beat this unbeatable monster would help get Warrior over? Uh, This just feels like Hogan kind of taking the opportunity to call a shot, so to speak, to me.
2: Well, we needed somebody for Hogan to work with when he came back and we needed to have a ready-made program for him. We needed somebody to put him out and we knew that we were going to go with Warrior and uh, DiBiase for DiBiase and and then Rude uh, after that with Warrior. So we're going to feed Warrior somebody new. A lot of guys to go around.
1: Uh, In this match, we see uh, Earthquake beat Hercules in just under five minutes with his squash finisher, uh, Bruce, neither guy is with us anymore. And I look forward to an earthquake show one day. I think there's some good stories to tell there, but do you have any, uh, Hercules stories you can tell us besides chainsaw sages? Uh, that story is hilarious and it's in the archives in our steroid trial, if you want to hear it, but anything else on Herc?
2: Well, back in the day, when you would go to places like Boston and Chicago, they would have out by the rental car buses and things, they would have these buttons, kind of like cross-the-street buttons that you push at a stoplight. You push the button, and the light says to walk. And you could push the button, and it would send out a gush of, of warm air. And it said above the button, and it says, push for heat. And Herc walks up to it and goes, hey, I wonder if I push this. Some guy's going to come out with a pair of nucks and nail me from behind. Push for heat. <laughs> My God, but that that was, that was Ray's sense of humor. He just said it so innocently that it, it made the rounds. And that was the classic Hercules story. Uh,
1: Next up was a backstage interview with Rona Barrett and Miss Elizabeth. Rona puts over Liz's beauty and asks her where she's been. Uh, Liz says she could have done more to be involved in the matches in the past, but when she returns, she will. Uh, Three things here, Bruce. One, who the fuck is Rona Barrett? Two, why the fuck is she here? And three, who booked this shit?
2: Rona Barrett was the original gossip columnist on TV. She had all the dirt on celebrities, and she had a a column, a newspaper column, but she also had a little television show where all she did was talk about the gossip. And this was long before TMZ. Rona Barrett was the one-woman TMZ of her time. And... She was a big star, so she was one of those celebrities. Sometimes you only got celebrities because Ed Cohen wanted to meet them. There you go. That's what <laughs> I wanted to hear. That's what I wanted to hear. Okay. Verona uh, was a get. She was she was a nice lady.
1: Uh, now everyone's favorite. Brutus the fucking barber Beefcake was interviewed by Sean Mooney. Uh, Beefcake says he was taking a look at Mr. Perfect's record, and it's pretty impressive But everybody has flaws and makes mistakes, so he plans to sever the perfect record at a pretty good clip, and he snips the papers. We haven't talked about this before, so help me out. Uh, Brutus Beefcake's a male stripper, right? Is he? A gigolo? Why do you say that? Well, he wears a bow tie. He has, you know, the legs. He's a barber. He cuts people's hair. Okay, let's talk about He's that. a stylist. He wasn't all he he came to the company as Brutus Beefcake. Y'all eventually yeah, nobody made knows him.
2: What, I didn't I didn't make him shit. But Our, yeah, I don't know what the y'all hell. Y'all he made was.
1: him a barber. So did he go to barber school?
2: Yes. He went to the Sal Fedora School of Barbering. As a matter of fact, Sal Fedora was the world champion barber 10 years in a row also the personal stylist to vincent kennedy mcmahon for many years so vince gets his haircut with hedge clippers
1: well everybody's got their own style man well what kind of barber uses fucking hedge clippers
2: brutus so he's a gigolo right i don't know why he's a gigolo Dude, you're asking me what the original thing of Brutus the Barber was or Brutus Beefcake was? I can't tell you. I don't know what the hell that was. I remember him and Johnny Valiant coming out to the I don't know what the hell that was.
1: Nobody does either. So the next match is Mr. Perfect and Beefcake. Uh, Beefcake wins the match by pinfall in just under eight minutes after he slingshots Perfect into the ring post. After the match, Beefcake cuts the genius's hair. You can hear all about the WWF's decision to end a former AWA world champion's undefeated streak and have Mr. Perfect lose his very first televised match against Brutus, the fucking barber
2: beefcake on our Mr. Perfect show in the archives. I'm going to correct you right there. Okay. And this was Vince's rationale. It's not TV. It's pay-per-view. It's true. Um,
1: they got to pay for that, pal. Goddamn. I didn't know this until I watched it uh, this week. The Rock stole Mr. Perfect's kicks. Probably, yeah. Very similar. Mr. Perfect picks his leg up and, like, shakes it a little bit and then kicks you. And I saw The Rock do it. I thought, I've seen that before, but I don't know where. And I saw Mr. Perfect do it, and I'm like, ta-da, there it is.
2: Yeah, but I think Perfect stole it from uh, (laughs) Rocky Johnson. I'm sure everything's stolen. Yeah. Exactly. There's no, nothing original. Uh, we got lots of
1: messages with conspiracy theories that perhaps Hogan negotiated to have his buddy get a win over Perfect Here, and he used his losing to Warrior as leverage to help make it happen. You ever hear some dumb shit like that? No, and that's dumb. Uh, are you going to say, though, it's dumb that Hogan never campaigned for Brutus? Because I'd love for he you did to campaign. lie. To him. He
2: did campaign for Brutus. But not he here. No, not that I know. Of. No. I mean, you know, Vince. When did he? If he 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 didn't. He campaigned for Brutus to replace him.
1: But he wouldn't have campaigned for Brutus to be perfect.
2: I don't think he cared that much on that kind of stuff. No.
1: Uh, The Torch reports that both Terry Taylor and Kurt uh, were open to leaving the WWF and going to work for the NWA around this time. Of course, Taylor did leave, but couldn't go to work there straight away. Uh, Was there ever any serious concern that. Perfect. Maybe wanting to leave here. And is that part of the consideration for why you guys decide to end the streak? Never heard that. Okay. Uh, Roddy Piper was then interviewed by mean gene where Piper revealed that half of his body is painted black. And he starts proclaiming that bad news. Brown was two faced. Uh, And this promo has Piper almost comically gasping for air. Piper is facing bad news. Brown here. Uh, why did bad news Brown not have theme music?
2: A lot of guys didn't have theme music back then.
1: He he doesn't on the show. and, And he also appears, uh, to be one of the only heels who doesn't have a heel manager. And we've kind of talked about that was one of the rules and he never really had one. So carry me through what made him special in that. We're not using theme music and we're not using a manager.
2: Well, Vince really liked Bad News, and he thought that he had a great promo. Didn't think that he needed one. Bad News didn't want one. He felt that he could stand on his own, didn't didn't want a manager, wanted to be different than all the other heels, and it was simply an attempt to do just that, make him different, and allow him to do what he did very well and cut promos. Uh, so Roddy
1: and Bad News match ends in a double countout at just around seven minutes. Would these have been two guys who refused to put each other over because they both have reputations for being difficult to work with?
2: No, I think it was more of not really knowing what the hell they were going to do beyond it. And not, not really having a clue as far as wanting to end, end it one way or another.
1: Uh, There's rumors in the torch before WrestleMania that Piper was trying to get a release and finish up here. Uh, he's allegedly unhappy with his position and wants to try his hand with the N.W.A. Do you remember him being unhappy here and wanting out of his contract? And did his ABC pilot with Ventura tag team have anything to do with that?
2: Roddy could always be happy and unhappy at times. If, if Roddy felt that he should have gotten $10 more in a house, then he would be unhappy. He would let everybody around know about it. Uh, I don't remember anything extraordinary at this time kind of almost to the contrary um and the reason i say that is because roddy and, and rick martell were really good friends and enjoyed traveling together and roddy and i were good friends i don't remember anything around this time that he was especially unhappy about
1: of course all anyone remembers about this match is that piper painted himself half black and i've got lots of questions Uh, But first, let's share some of what Piper has said about this. Quote, first of all, you know, I was born in Saskatoon. There are no black people that I know of that are dumb enough to go to a place that cold. So there's no racism in me at all. Let that marinate. He also says one day Vince called him into a meeting with himself, Pat Patterson, and bad news. And Vince says something like, uh, quote, I want you to wrestle bad news, Brown at WrestleMania. I'm looking at bad news who was a really good judo player and just a so, so professional wrestler. Uh, and here's, what's going through my mind. I'm looking at him and I'm going, I'm going to have about 45 interviews about this guy. And I'm thinking about Nelson Mandela at that time, who had said something that really stuck with me. Nelson Mandela was put in jail for 20 some years for political crimes. Every morning he was the first man when the guard came to extend his hand to the guard. What a hell of a man. At the same time, Cindy Lauper, True Colors, had come out. In my mind, when I was trying to do, there is no difference. I needed material on Bad News Brown. I did something where I sang True Colors, and I did a thing about Nelson Mandela. But they don't seem to remember that. The thing I didn't do so well was when I came down, I pretended to be Michael Jackson. I don't quite dance like Michael does, I guess. So I got just about the same reaction from you as I came out. Nothing. Now, if you remember, in the match, Piper did pull a white glove out of his trunks, and he started to hit Bad News with it during the match. And in my head, that was just because Bad News wore a black glove. Uh, I guess Piper meant for that to be Michael Jackson. And before anybody tweets me and says Michael Jackson did black or white, I want to mention that that song came out in 91, a year after this. Uh, Piper continues, So I had the match, I came back, and the stuff they had painted me with, Vince had made special. So when I broke a sweat, it wouldn't come off. There was a special clear solution to take this special black off. When I got there, the lady started rubbing my cheeks, and in about five minutes, I started bleeding. Andre the Giant had taken the solution, poured it out, and put water in it. Now I'm in Toronto, half black. I decided there was nothing much better to do than to go out drinking. So he tells a story that he goes drinking and then wakes up, in the door of his hotel room, but the door has been knocked down. And for some reason, there's a cowboy hat in the room. So he flies home from Toronto with a connection in Chicago, half black, carrying a four foot Mickey mouse. He got his daughter wearing a cowboy hat, carrying a Halliburton. And he says, quote, the way I got it off was I had to sit in the sauna. Took me about a month of rubbing this stuff off. But what am I going to do? Go beat up Andre, but the reason I painted myself half black was was more the meshing. I did the Nelson Mandela. I did the true colors. Bad News Brown didn't take it that way. So, of course, nothing like this could happen in 2017, Bruce, uh, but it makes me think Vince had to approve this because Piper says Vince had the paint and the solution made, so I've got a lot of questions here. Whose idea is this? Was anyone upset about it? What did Bad News think about it? Did anyone suggest this was a bad idea?
2: It was Piper's idea. I don't know if anybody was upset about it, but there was a lot of, what the fuck? I don't know that anybody particularly thought it was a great idea. Um, I don't honestly know what the hell Bad News thought about it. I, I know Bad News being a very outspoken guy, if he was upset about it, I think he probably would have let somebody know. So was, there, was there heat sorry? that you know of at all? No. No. Like I said, if there had been heat, and I'm sure that's something that they would have run by bad news before he did it. Um, I don't think bad news had a problem with it. But uh, Vince, it's funny, had it made, there, there just was... Uh, makeup you know type makeup that you put on that will stay on your skin so that when you sweat it's not going to peel off like paint um and you have to have this certain solution almost like a turpentine stuff to take this take it off so it wasn't like we had something special we're going to have something specially made (laughs) only one solution in the world that can get it off but i think it took roddy about three or four days actually to get the stuff off did you
1: know andre dumped the solution?
2: Andre and Arnold Skolan accidentally dropped the solution in the sink, allegedly. You yeah. saw it or you heard about it? No,
1: I heard about it. Did you see Piper the next day when he was all fucked up or were you at the bar with him when he was
2: getting fucked up that night? I saw, Rod- I saw Roddy in the shower with Rick Martell with a toothbrush trying to scrub it off of him to no avail. And I think everybody saw Roddy in the bar that night. I did not have the pleasure of seeing Roddy walking through the airport with a four-foot Mickey Mouse. How awesome is that? Got to love it. Uh, next, Can you imagine the looks he got from people?
1: I mean, it's a it's a professional wrestler from a movie. I mean, he's been, been in They Live, so he's a movie star. And he's half black, and he's got a cowboy hat and probably sunglasses and a Halliburton and a four-foot Mickey Mouse. And he's hungover. Oh.
2: Just another day in Toronto. Uh,
1: Next up, we see Steve Allen playing a piano. He's in a shower with the Bolsheviks to perform the Soviet National Anthem. Of course, Allen played different songs instead. This was pretty well done. This seems like something you would have produced. Am I right? I did, uh,
2: along with Vince. Uh, How was Steve Allen to work with? And tell younger listeners who he was. Steve Allen was the original, I guess what you'd call Jimmy Fallon now. Did I hit that right? Same network, everything. He was the original host of The Tonight Show, a great comedian, a great movie star, um, just talent beyond talent. When I got to do the vignettes to promote Alan's appearance at WrestleMania, I flew out to his home. He was married to Audrey Meadows, which only people my age or older will know who the hell she is. But she was in the original Honeymooners <laughs> with Jackie Gleason. Okay, Bruce, stop talking. Um, But Steve Allen was the type of talent that you could give him the idea of what you wanted to do, and he would just start creating. He was absolutely a genius when it came to stuff like that. So we had some things written out for him, presented him with the idea, and that's just him singing and, and playing with the talent and having fun. The the other good thing about Steve Allen was we had to fly in his his own hairstylist because he's bald, and so nobody could see him without his without his hair, and so he had to have three hours to go into makeup and get his hair put on. Well, and he just outed him, no problem. Oh, he's been outed long before this. Uh,
1: So this leads us to the next match, the Hart Foundation versus the Bolsheviks. Uh, The Hart Foundation win the match in 19 seconds. Uh, It's worth mentioning Steve Allen got more uh, time here than Bret Hart did at WrestleMania 6. Isn't this a waste of Bret Hart in 1990? And was he vocal about this at the time? No, they were on the card. Do you think he was
2: just fine with it? They were fine with it.
1: In his book, Brett tells a story about how he drew uh, a special cartoon for Andre since everybody knew this was going to be his last night. And he actually had it framed and all the wrestlers uh, had signed it and he passed it over to Andre and uh, Andre was fighting back tears. And he was uh, very touched by that and said, thank you, boss. Do you remember that uh, drawing that he passed around?
2: Yeah, I do. And and Brett used to do quite a few of those. He did some for uh, Chief, and he always had a drawing on the chalkboard, too, every night. Something different. But I do remember that particular one for Andre. What was it of? Do you remember? It was Andre, but it was also all the different talent. And Brett did caricature cartoons. Yeah. So it was just kind of all of the talent paying homage to Andre, and everybody signed it.
1: Uh, After the uh, Hart Foundation match, we get the announcement about WrestleMania 7 coming to the los angeles coliseum and we'd love for you to listen to that train wreck of an episode in the archives uh we've got a lot of downloads for wrestlemania 7 so if you'd like to hear about the next one uh, it's there for your enjoyment now the next match is the barbarian with bobby heenan taking on tito santana Uh, barbarian wins in four minutes and 33 seconds the storyline is that heenan has just purchased the contract of barbarian uh, I don't know when we'll talk about him again. So, do you have any funny stories about Barbarian you could share? You wanted me to remind you about the ring cart?
2: Well, when you watch the Barbarian's entrance, he didn't have music either. But Bobby is standing in front of the cart, and just watch the gyrations of Barbarian behind Heenan. It almost looks like a a bad gay porn with Barbarian's gyrations behind Heenan, and it was it was uh, not intentional, but it's just kind of funny watching it now as opposed to a good gay porn yeah what's your favorite good gay porn
1: you know uh lots of i can't believe you did it right there uh lots of racist comments uh from jesse about enchiladas burritos and diarrhea uh chico's revenge did tito or anyone even care about those type of comments back then obviously it wouldn't fly today
2: No, it wouldn't. And no, Jesse and Tito were friends, and that was just Jesse's shtick with Tito. Uh, Chico Chico Santana.
1: Next, we get a Dusty Rhodes and Sapphire interview with Sean Mooney, where Dusty tells Randy Savage and Sherry that they are missing the crown jewel, but Dusty and Sapphire have it. Uh, And it's worth mentioning here that Dusty Rhodes wrote in his book that he loved working with Macho and considered it a great honor. Not only because he was a top guy, but because of the amount of respect he had for his father. He also writes that Sapphire, whose real name was Juanita, wasn't sure what to do with all the money she was making, including a big payday from this show. Uh, Dusty says, cash those fucking checks. Uh, One more time for the record. Uh, Dusty in polka dots and with Sapphire is definitely not a rib. Right, Bruce? Uh, So the next match, of course, Dusty Rhodes and Sapphire taking on Randy Savage and Queen Sherry. Uh, They jack up this scissor lift even a little more for uh, the king and queen to make their way to the ring. Uh, Before the match, Dusty announces that Elizabeth is going to be in their corner, and she comes down to Savage's music, which I guess is an odd choice, but it's what people associated her with. Uh, of course, the baby faces win the match in just under eight minutes after Sapphire pins Sherry. And after the match, uh, Dusty, Sapphire, and Elizabeth are all dancing in the ring. Was this the first mixed
2: tag in the history of the WWF or just their first one on pay-per-view, Bruce? Do you know? Oh, it's just the first one on pay-per-view because that whole summer, that was a summer that... I was going around with uh, Randy and Sherry against Dusty and Sapphire with Liz in their corner. So we had been doing this match for six months. Uh, Was Sherry resentful about working with Sapphire here? It feels like she's been in the business forever and
1: paid her dues, and now she's finally got a WrestleMania match, and she's paired with Sapphire.
2: Sherry hated working with Sapphire, to tell you the truth. (laughs) She did not like Juanita. She liked her fine enough as a person, and they actually traveled together. But Sherry hated working with Sapphire because she was not good. She wasn't a trained wrestler. She actually did work before she came there. But Sherry didn't like working with Sapphire and would sometimes just beat the living shit out of her in the ring.
1: I know she's green as grass, but Sherry Sherry was making some chicken salad here. Was she not?
2: Well, you know, she took, well, she took the little Sapphire, you know, and she just kind of, well, you you know, chop her up. And then, well, you know, she grabbed the hair, you know, and then she did like the beel, you know, and then then she would revert. Well, you know, and then Sapphire would grab her hair and, and, you know, and then, well, you know,
1: Uh, it's pretty sad in hindsight, Dusty, Randy, Elizabeth. Sherry and Sapphire are all no longer with us. Literally the only person alive in the ring is Hebner. Did you realize that when you watched it?
2: Oh man. Yeah, I did. That's that's tough. It is. I I have a picture. I have a picture of where I'm the only one of a match where when we did on the road and it's I'm in it. Uh, and Joey Morella was referee and I was the only one. Wow live so yeah it, it uh, all my peeps sucks
1: uh, what was Randy's relationship like with Elizabeth by this point great uh, was Randy for or against Liz coming back she'd been off TV for a long time here
2: oh he was 100% for it he he wanted her back and um, because it, it it was tough <laughs> you know, for them for a while and then you gotta go a whole year. But we you know, she was on the road in house shows because we had been doing the, the whole thing, like I said, with the mixed tag with Liz in one corner, me in the other corner. So she had been on the road. But it she hadn't been on T V. So she was a special attraction. But um Randy just wanted to be able to travel with his wife again. And he didn't get to do that for another year. And then then they got married on TV. Then all hell broke loose. But that's a whole other story. In February, uh, Macho Man would go on the Arsenio
1: Hall Show to help to promote the main event, which would eventually be Buster Douglas' involvement. Um, but when he's on Arsenio, Savage just absolutely smashes. It comes off like a, a natural. It comes off witty, smart, all the stuff we know Savage to be. I always liked seeing the guys on Arsenio back in the day. Do you remember that particular appearance, and how did this whole Arsenio relationship
2: come about? I do remember the appearance, and you're right. Savage was excellent. We also had Sherry on there. But Randy in that environment was so damn colorful and so quick on his feet that you could put Randy in any situation, and he would come out smelling like a rose. At the time, Arsenio was – the hot talk show to be on, he was new, it was on Fox, he was different and we had a pretty good relationship with him and he enjoyed wrestling. So he always would have our talent on,
1: uh, after this was a backstage segment with, uh, and Gene and Bobby Heenan and uh, Bobby's talking about Andre and he seemingly gets lost and Gene calls him on it. Uh, Bobby says something like you have just committed pal and gets quiet. Uh, Were you producing this? And do you remember Heenan ever kind of freezing up like this before or after?
2: I did produce it. He didn't freeze. That was intentional on Bobby's part to show that he was so flustered. Yeah.
1: He didn't know where the hell he was. I like it. Uh, The next bit is Rona Barrett saying it's hard to dig up anything on WWF superstars because, quote, you guys have very clean images. (laughs) I legit laughed out loud at that. Who wrote that line?
2: I mean, that's got to be a fucking rib. Yeah, that, this, this was, I think the worst piece in the whole show. It was bad. It was worse than bad. It was one of those. Well, we've got a five minute intermission. We got to do something. Well, we've got Rona Barrett. Let's do something with her. Yeah, it was horrible. She
1: teases that she has a little piece of film from the quote adult library variety, uh, and that it's of Ventura. She tries to throw to the clip, but Jesse instead throws to macho man Was the timing of this right after the whole Sylvester Stallone stuff came out in the tabloids or he had done a stag film before he was a mainstream celebrity star?
2: I don't know. I don't know if it was that or if it was just a desperate attempt at humor that went nowhere. I know Jesse mentioned Stallone, but Jesse would mention any big name to try and get a rub up against him. I just don't remember when that story came out that he had that. I think it was it was right after Rocky before um, Paradise oh. Alley. It came out in seventy six. Yeah, wow. The stag the stag film deal. Yeah.
1: Uh, Savage cuts a great promo with Sean Mooney and Sherry next talking about Dusty and Elizabeth, and he says, "I love this line too. Suffering builds character, and you're going to learn a lot of character." How underrated was Macho King? I feel like so many people give props to Macho Man. But when he did the Macho King gimmick, man, he really went all in on that and got that shit over.
2: Supreme Bill's character. And you're going to learn a lot of character. Oh yeah. Randall was great. Just underrated is not even does him justice. He, he was absolutely great. Next up, we've got
1: Mean Gene talking to the brand new and now three-time tag team champions Demolition. Um... In my opinion, Bruce, Demolition at this point is probably the third most overact in the company behind Hogan and Warrior. Would you agree with that? Sure. They were hot, man. Uh, Why turn them heel a few months later? It feels like if they're hot and then the third most overact, and Hogan's going to take a sabbatical, it doesn't make sense to turn them heel. Is it just trying to prep for the road warriors coming in? We had Legion of Doom coming in. There you go. Uh, Next up, we get Mean Gene calling Hulk Hogan the greatest World Wrestling Federation champion of all time, which you've got to think is setting up the obvious here. Uh, Why did Hogan always start his promos looking off camera and then turn to look at the camera? Was that just his style or is there some sort of reasoning or rationale or was that something that was uh, coached upon? Do you recall that or is it just natural? No, that was just natural. Uh, somewhere in here, he says, an ultimate warrior, this is where the power lies, man, and points to his palm. Uh, and he also says he's going to get the warrior down on his knees and ask him, do you want to live forever? And if your answer is yes, breathe your last breath into my body and I can save you. Are there no religious overtones here at all? Am I just making this completely up? This was like something you produced. Am I wrong? You're wrong. It's a Vince McMahon production. Well, Vince once took on God on pay per view, so and beat him. Uh, next up is some crazy shit from the Warrior. Uh, he says, "Wait some, till
2: we wait till we get to that on the poll. I'll tell you some funny stories about walking into a Catholic church, knowing what the hell I was going to shoot. Yeah, God, it does some crazy shit. Go ahead. Sorry. Just did you when
1: you watch this? Did you see any religious overtones to the Hogan promo? No, I never saw that. No,
2: I didn't see any religious overtones of brother love. So there you go.
1: Okay. Uh, so next up, some straight up crazy shit from the war here. He starts with uh, Sean Mooney and he says something like, you're nothing but a normal and you don't deserve to breathe the same air that Hulk Hogan and I do. Does that not sound like a heel? Yes, you're, it a, does. you're a normal. And basically
2: shoves him out of the shot.
1: Yeah. That's like the most heel thing ever. But much. he's your babyface champion. Uh, he says that uh, he is here to bring the warriors and the Hulkamaniacs together as one, and then he interlocks his fingers and bows his head. Just mentioning this finds it interesting. Um, I'm curious who's producing this and who, when he's done, says, "Oh yeah, that's fine. We'll just go with this." God damn, I love it,
2: pal. (laughs) When you push Mooney out of
0: the way, ah, it's fucking great.
1: So, Bruce, we've all heard about these crazy Ultimate Warrior promos, uh, and we just mentioned that this one was kind of weird because he's supposed to be a babyface, but he's shoving Sean Mooney and calling him a normal and saying he doesn't deserve to breathe his air. The next match is the Rockers versus the Orient Express. The Orient Express won the match by countout after about seven minutes. Guerrilla Monsoon said on commentary, quote, the Rockers look lethargic today. So that's a babyface announcer bearing a babyface team. How much fucking heat did the Rockers have at this point?
2: You know, you asked me that uh, off camera. I don't remember that they had a whole lot of heat, but. The Rockers always had heat with somebody, and Monsoon had a tendency, if Monsoon knew the finish of something, he would, it. He, he would tease Foreshadow. it, he would, yeah, so it, it was giving the baby faces an excuse, I'm sure, in Gorilla's mind. Uh, oh, but- they look a little lethargic, they might have been out a little bit, too much last night, maybe that's the reason we're going to do the jizz here to the- <laughs> Orient Express,
1: Uh, There's rumor and innuendo that in January, the idea was for it to be the Rockers versus the Hart Foundation at WrestleMania, but apparently at a TV along the way, the Rockers showed up all bruised up and claimed they had been fighting each other. Vince allegedly gets pissed off at this and pulls them off the WrestleMania card completely, replacing them in the match with the Hart Foundation with the Bolsheviks. Of course, they made their way back on the card, but in the process, get paired up with the Orient Express and lose is fact or fiction.
2: That they had a fight with each other, that's fact. Whether or not it played into whether or not they were on WrestleMania, I don't really know. Um, but the Orient Express, man, they were I thought they were a great tag team. Yeah, and I love watching. They could get guys over big time. I agree.
1: And they went over a uh or went Under rather a facelift soon when Paul Diamond comes in. He had just signed with the company in February. Uh, And he would later join the team under Hood. How did that come about, and why did you guys insert him and move one
2: out? We were using Sato for um, – what the fuck word am I looking for here? (laughs) I'm punchy tonight. To translate in Japan, and Sato was heavily involved with our negotiations with Japan at the time. And Sato didn't want to work full-time. Sato had, had already retired prior to this and wasn't looking to be on the road and be working day in and day out. So the plan was, okay, we'll bring bring in Paul Diamond, because Paul Diamond and Pat Tanaka had worked previously as a tag team in the AWA, and they were a hell of a tag team. Smash. So yeah, so put Diamond under the hood and keep it going. There you go. Uh, Steve Allen then interviews the Rhythm
1: and Blues in the locker room. The next matchup is Dino Bravo versus Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Duggan wins after about four minutes, and then he's attacked by earthquake. Anything you want to mention here,
2: Bruce? No, it's just every time that I saw earthquake on this show made me reminisce on what an incredible athlete he was. He was a huge guy, but good God, did he move. Uh, The
1: next match is for the million dollar title. Jake Roberts was in possession of the title by this point, and he's taking on Ted DiBiase. Ted DiBiase. Uh, we talked about this angle a lot in our million dollar man episode. So if you want to hear more about this, please check out that show in our archives. It's one of our most downloaded and most well-reviewed shows so far. I think you'll dig it. Anyway, Jake gains possession of the title when big boss man turned baby face and gave it to him. So now we're here and DiBiase is being shown, uh, coming to the ring in a cart. And then it cuts to backstage where Jake gives an amazing promo. Stop what you're doing right now and throw this in your Google machine Jake Roberts, WrestleMania six promo, and you'll see it. Jake Roberts, WrestleMania six promo. Uh, many fans consider this one of the greatest promos of all time. And mean gene afterwards even says Longfellow couldn't have said it any better. Uh, Bruce, who helped put the promos together with the guys? Did you help produce this? And if so, what was the reaction when you shot it? And did Jake kind of do this on his own or would anybody
2: else have a hand in it? The extent of my producing these promos was essentially letting the guys know you've got promos for tonight. That's 100% Jake the Snake Roberts. Probably helped DiBiase a little bit um, with his stuff, but that's all Jake. Jake was genius when it came to promos. The art of a Jake Roberts promo was the fact that he didn't yell and scream. Yep. He would bring it down here so that you would have to come close and listen to everything he said. He was a master. And guys today could learn a shitload from just going back and watching how Jake worked in the ring, no wasted motion, nothing wasted, and his promos, every one of them told a story. I saw Jake Roberts watch this
1: promo once, and he joked that watching it made him hard. I mean, he thinks it's one of his best promos ever. You should check it out, Jake Roberts WrestleMania Six promo. Uh, DiBiase wins the match by countout at 11:50, uh, thus regaining possession of the million-dollar title. Uh, after the match, Jake DDTs DiBiase and gives out some of his money to the fans at the ringside, uh, including the recently passed Mary Tyler Moore, who was sitting ringside. Ted wrote about uh, this match in his book. He says. My contest at WrestleMania six was probably one of my most enjoyable matches simply because it was a really good match and it was very easy to work with Jake. We didn't have to talk that much in the ring or plan things in advance. It just came together. Jake had great ring psychology. In my estimation, if Jake would have kept himself clean, I believe that he would be right now in Stanford working for Vince McMahon on the
2: creative team. Do you agree with Ted there, Bruce? Without a doubt. Jake is the probably greatest mind in the business that is untapped right now. That is. Even with everything he's been through, man, you can't take away the knowledge in the psychology, the simple psychology of Jake Roberts. Um,
1: then we get the Akeem and Slick interview with Sean Mooney, a Bossman interview with me and Gene. Now we're at our next big match, big boss man versus Akeem, the former tag team known as the twin towers. Uh, DiBiase, uh, has been hiding under the ring and he sneaks out from under the ring and attacks Bossman prior to the match. It wouldn't matter though. Bossman wins the match in under two minutes. Uh, Just. To state clearly here, Bruce, one more time, for the record, Akeem, the African dream is not a rib, right?
2: Akeem is not a rib, baby.
1: Uh, Sean Mooney then interviews Mary Tyler Moore. As we mentioned a minute ago, uh, she recently passed away. Do you have any memories of working with Mary Tyler Moore?
2: Well, I didn't get to work with her, but we all had the opportunity. She came back. Uh, after the event, and you should have seen the line of people in line to get over to meet Mary Tyler Moore. And I remember Hogan coming up and telling her, he says, oh, my God, I had such a crush crush on Laura Petrie growing up. You have no idea how great it is to meet you. And she was so sweet. Um, she even looked at me and goes, oh, my God, I almost didn't recognize you without makeup on. You're brother love. She was just really it was just cool. I mean, for an old timer like me to meet Laura Petrie.
1: Next we get Howard Finkel in the ring and the graphic on screen says the Fink. Uh was this the first time it was shown like that? This seems like a little bit of a rib.
2: No, it's not a rib, that's just what everybody called him. I mean everybody referred to him as the Fink.
1: Uh tell us something funny or interesting about Howard Finkel. We haven't spent much time talking about him on the show before.
2: Well, I believe that WrestleMania 6, April 1st, WrestleMania 6, whatever the hell year this was. 1990. Then this, I think, would be the 10-year anniversary of the hiring of Howard Finkel with the WWF. Howard was the first employee of Titan Sports, and he was Vincent Linda's first employee. And they hired him on April 1st. So you tell me, is it a rib? Uh, I love Fink. He's listening to this. I love you, Fink. You know that. Now it's time for a real highlight. Uh,
1: Finkel introduces here to perform their brand new song, Hunka, 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 Honky Love. Jimmy Hart presents Rhythm and Blues. And they're in a pink Cadillac being driven by former WCW World Champion Diamond Dallas Page. Uh, I've always wondered how that came about. And page once said, before I went to WCW, I drove the pink Cadillac at WrestleMania six. I didn't get the gig though. It was my car that got the gig. And I just did the diamond Dallas chauffeur routine.
2: Who even knew that page had a pink Cadillac. I did. Did you really? Yeah. From his club and dusty reminded me of that. He had a club down in Port Myers, Norman jeans and, I was asking around, does as anybody know uh, where we can find a pink Cadillac? And Dusty reminded me, Diamond Dallas Page got a pink Cadillac, baby. He'll drive that motherfucker up here for you. And I called DDP. And Diamond Dallas Page drove from Florida to Toronto? Yes, he did. And his pink Cadillac.
1: How much would you have possibly paid to have this Cadillac on the fucking show?
2: Well, the trick was finding them, <laughs> man. They're not—they're not all that easy to find. It was 1950, you know, era pink Cadillac. It was beautiful. It was perfect for the honky tonk man.
1: I'm not arguing that, but I'm saying this motherfucker drove from Florida we to pay, Toronto. We paid him. Yeah, we paid him. God, that's a lot. We paid him uh, after the song in which two female backup singers and Jimmy Hart did most of the singing. Uh, honky was distracted by two vendors at ringside. Who ended up being the bushwhackers who came in the ring and chased everyone out? A couple questions. Who were the female backup singers?
2: Do you remember? They were just two singers. Uh, I think either Jimmy Hart or Jim Johnston found. Who wrote the song, Jimmy? Jimmy Hart. Uh, on a scale of
1: one to Katie Vick, how much did Greg Valentine hate being involved with this?
2: <laughs> he hated it. He was horrible. Oh my god, I I cringed watching this again because it was just so bad. They were so off and then when they go to Valentine for his one line in the song, he was he was gone, so he was somewhere else. Greg hated Rhythm and Blues.
1: Well, I don't know that a lot of people really really dug it either. Um What type of play was Diamond Dallas Page making backstage to come in? None.
2: I mean, obviously he was – we had brought him up before to try him out as a color commentator. Vince didn't care for him. And he had sent in stuff to be a manager. His wrestling days, he hadn't even started training to be a wrestler yet. So – Dallas was good, man. Dallas is a great guy. He he knew his role, and he knew that WrestleMania wasn't the place to go and, and start pitching for a job. I'm not shitting on DDP. I like DDP. I was just asking. Yeah. No, no, I'm not shitting on him either. I,
1: but he kind of knew his role here. It's interesting, though, that he makes his WrestleMania debut in the same building 12 years later. Isn't that crazy? That's awesome. Uh, Finkel then announces the attendance of 67,678. Did the company consider this number a success, Bruce? Without a doubt. Sure. Uh, What would Meltzer say was the real number? Fuck Meltzer. (laughs) It never gets old. Uh, The next match is uh, Rick Rude, and he's taking on Jimmy Superfly Snooker. Rude wins the match in about four minutes with the Rude Awakening. Uh, by this point, Snooka is basically being used as an enhancement talent. Would you agree with that, Bruce?
2: The jury was still out on Brother Jimmy at this point. But we knew that we did not have the Jimmy Snooka of 1984
1: <laughs> here. Uh, if you want to hear more about Rick Rude, we have everything you could ever want to know in our archived episode. Hashtag Rick Rude's dong.
2: Never forget. Did you know I have Rick Rude's tights from this match, Bruce? I did not know that, Conrad. you have the same tights that his dong was in? (laughs) You know, we got to stop talking about Rick Rude's
1: dong. Okay, Bruce. I don't know where to fit it in here, but uh, somewhere in late January, superstar Billy Graham goes on entertainment tonight and starts shitting on wrestling. Uh, He comes out strongly against steroids and says something like, 90% of the wrestlers in the WWF are on steroids, and then he blames steroids for his body deteriorating the way it has. What was the reaction in the office to Superstar coming
2: out like this? Well, nobody was pleased about it, and unfortunately, Superstar was in that position because of the abuse over the years of steroids. It's not really a secret, but the timing was the shits and obviously it was something that they weren't really ready to address at that point.
1: Uh, Next up is the main event. We're finally here. It's Hulk Hogan versus the ultimate warrior. What's on the line here, Bruce title versus title. You said on our Zeus episode that this was not title versus title. Do you want to correct yourself and fall on your sword now?
2: No, because it's funny. And this was brought up, and the reason I say that is because we always brought up, well, if Hulk wins, is Hulk going to be the Intercontinental Champion? No, God damn it, it's just Champion versus Champion. (laughs) But you said title versus title. That's in all of the advertisements and everything. God damn it, it's Champion versus Champion. Title versus title, but the one won't be the other. So if Warrior wins, then he won't be the WWF Champion? Of course he will, God damn it but it'll also be the intercontinental champion. No, he'll just get rid of that then. So obviously we were applying logic. Sure.
1: Uh, I'm sure we'll talk about this from every angle, uh, but one of the things that sticks out to me is it's an all baby face main event and it's never been done before for a pay-per-view wrestling event, much less a WrestleMania and the WWF wouldn't even attempt this again for six years when they did Bret Hart versus Shawn Michaels at WrestleMania 12. Uh, was anybody nervous about this concept? Who was for it? Who was against it?
2: I think in the back of our minds, I think, well, not only in the back of our minds, front of our minds too. I think everybody was a little nervous about it because traditionally in the wrestling business, babyface matches don't draw. Right. You got to have that personal issue. You need that strong antagonist and you want, you need people rooting the majority rooting for someone and that same rooting against somebody else we had a split crowd so that's always a concern because you've got two baby faces and you'd never want your top baby face much less your top two baby faces to be put in a position where the audience has to choose sides and that's exactly what we did here
1: Before we get going, I want to mention that Linda Hogan is pregnant during this. And I only mention that because when you hear this is the case, um, guys sometimes start thinking about taking time off or working a reduced schedule. Do you remember that being a factor at all into what the plans were going to be for Hogan, Linda's pregnancy?
2: Yeah, I mean, Hogan wanted to spend time when his, his kid was born, yes. He wanted to spend time with family and everything, so that was a consideration around that time that he would, he was going to do the movie and he was also wanting to be around when his, his kid was born.
1: There were some rumors uh, going around at the time that Hogan was considering retiring. Do you remember that ever being a serious, a serious consideration in 1990? No. Uh, the build up for this match starts at the Royal rumble only a few months earlier. At one point in the match, Hogan and warrior are the only two in the ring uh, when they look at each other, it's electric. Uh, and then they do the crisscross. They hit the opposite sides of the ropes. They end up doing the double clothesline on each other. Uh, and this is the big tease for WrestleMania. Uh, was the decision already made at this point that this is who we're going with at WrestleMania? Or was this a test to see how it would match and what
2: the reaction would be? No, the decision had been made uh, way back at Survivor Series. So we, we knew where we were going. Uh, whenever I see clips of
1: this rumble, I always get a kick out of hearing Shivani on the call for such a big WWF show. Fuck Uh, Shivani too. Okay, cool. Uh, let's talk about Tony and the WWF for a
2: moment. Did you guys call him or did he call you? Somehow he got in touch with Linda McMahon. I think he called us. I don't really know. Uh, what was he like to work with when he was there? Tony was fine. Vince hated his Southern draw, and he had to go and take classes to learn how to speak like a human being and not speak like a Southerner because Lord knows there's only one half of the country that they speak with Yankee accents up there. And the rest of us that speak normally, I guess we're the weird ones. Um, I should mention
1: that ticket sales for a taping in Miami on January 15th with Warrior defending his intercontinental title against Dino Bravo were so soft that they had to add Piper Savage and Hogan perfect to move tickets. Was there a concern in January, February, March, anytime before the pay-per-view that warrior as the top
2: guy wouldn't be the draw they had in Hogan? Oh, hell yeah. A lot of concern because Hogan had always been the man. And right. in comparison, when you had Warrior on top or you had anybody else on top in a B or a C town, it didn't do the type of business that Hogan did. So there was concern, and a lot of people pointed to, well, when you've got Hogan over here and you've got to make a choice, I'm going to wait for Hogan to come back. Yeah. If you give the illusion that Hogan is out of the picture and that here is your, here's your guy now in the Warrior, that may change fans' perception. Yeah, that, that's, there were a lot of a lot of excuses and, and a lot of hemming and hawing going on there. Yeah, that was one of my follow up questions
1: later. Was after this show, you know, you see Hogan go to the spot in Japan, but after that, he takes an extended vacation. And I always thought that was sure it may have been time to give him off. You know, give him some time with the family and a well deserved vacation. But really, it's probably not to undermine the Warrior and cut his legs out from under him before he has a chance to see what he can really do.
2: Yes, and it it was to take the crutches away. Uh,
1: On Saturday night's main event, on January 27th, Hogan and Warrior teamed up to defeat Mr. Perfect and the Genius. After the match, Warrior was clotheslining both Perfect and Genius when Hogan came into the ring and turned Warrior around, and he clotheslined Hogan, knocking him down, and then they shoved each other. Um, we touched on this in our Zeus episode, but for those of you who didn't hear it, Zeus told Peter Rosenberg in a recent interview that he was supposed to win the world title and drop it to Hogan a year later at WrestleMania. He even gave the figures that he would be paid half a million dollars and Hogan wouldn't make 2 million. So if it's a lie, it's a lie with details. Can you clear up this rumor and innuendo again for us, Bruce? Did you ever hear this idea of a Zeus Hogan potential WrestleMania match?
2: I'm not saying Vince didn't have a discussion with Zeus at some point if he were to become actually somewhat decent in the ring that there may be a future with him and Hogan down the line. But I doubt very seriously <laughs> that Vince said, all right, pal, now you're going to make a half million. Hogan's going to make two million, and you're going to be the main event at WrestleMania 6."
1: Yeah. I, that's, it's unlike him to name numbers like that a year in advance.
2: It's just not real.
1: Yeah. Uh, of course, Hogan was uh, in the main event, but Zeus was not. Zeus was fired the day after the taping of the match, the movie, pay-per-view in Nashville. Uh, that pay-per-view did a 1.6 buy rate, which for a one-match show is pretty damn good. Do you remember being pleased with that number internally, Bruce?
2: Yeah, I think everybody was pleased because you didn't have the added expense of the production. Uh, we taped it into TV taping, and... It was a freebie movie was already in the can and you got a match. It was simple. (laughs) So yeah, it was found
1: money. Uh, If you want to hear more Zeus, it's in the archives. It was our bonus show this week. Uh, When did warrior become the guy to get the spot? Do you remember a specific building or angle or moment in time when it was apparent to you? Hey, this is where we're
2: going. It was more of a groundswell underneath, that his popularity just kept growing and growing to where when they were both on the same card or at a television taping, when they would go out individually, that all of a sudden warrior is getting that same kind of let's call it a road warrior pop, but that hogan pop the people started taking notice saying this some bitch is getting over Oh uh, the torch
1: reports in uh, January that the WWF is telling licensing partners, quote, the warrior is the man. Uh, what kind of heads up would you need to give your partners in that regard to make sure you maximized your money because you don't want to kind of get caught with your britches down and now everybody wants warrior stuff and you're behind the curve because you didn't want to give a spoiler. So there's a fine line between how you kind of guide them into, no, we need more warrior stuff and not just
2: letting a spoiler out. Am I wrong? Those conversations started taking place probably in November, um, November, December of the previous year to, so that they would have enough lead time so that they could get whatever they needed out and feature warrior. So it was, it was several months ahead of time.
1: Hogan uh, wrote about warrior in his book and here's what he had to say. Uh, ultimate warrior was the most chiseled bodybuilder to come into the wrestling business. He was ripped brother cut to the bone I was always thought of as a bodybuilder, even though I was really just a weightlifter. But when this guy came in, he blew me away. He had been dieting his whole life, and I was out drinking and raising hell with the boys. Uh, do you think that's a accurate description? 100%. Yes. Uh, the Torch printed a story that a subscriber met the Ultimate Warrior at a gas station after he won the Intercontinental title and congratulated him on his title victory. And he replied, It's just more fucking luggage. Does that sound like something Warrior would say? Yeah, that sounds about right. Uh, The Torch reports on February 2nd edition of the main event that it was planned to have Hogan and Warrior uh, team up to face Dino Bravo and Earthquake, but once they announced that Tyson is going to be involved as a special guest referee, it was changed to Hogan and Savage with Tyson as the ref. Why the switch to Savage as opposed to just putting Tyson in there in the tag match with those guys?
2: Because you wanted your best match, it was a primetime special, a Friday night primetime special on NBC, on network television. You wanted your best match, and the tag team match was not the best thing to feature. Hogan and Savage had main evented uh, WrestleMania. And did huge business. Did huge business, so give them that rematch on free television and spotlight your biggest star in the best light.
1: As we know, Tyson loses his boxing bout with Buster Douglas and pulls out, and is replaced by Douglas as the ref in the Hogan-Savage match on the February 23rd main event. That actually gets a 12.8 rating, so it does a huge number. Uh, And at the time, it's worth mentioning, we can't really adequately describe how over Mike Tyson was. So when he was announced as being affiliated with the WWF for Saturday night's main event here or Friday night's main event, it's a huge deal. And people, you know, often reference his involvement and compare it to Floyd Mayweather participating in 08, And that was a big deal, but man, Floyd is a much bigger deal post O eight than he was by O eight. Oh uh, eight was before the peak of Floyd Mayweather, but Tyson is arguably at his
2: peak in early ninety. Would you agree with that, Bruce? Mike Tyson was the man, and he hadn't done, you know, he hadn't done this kind of stuff. He wasn't he wasn't flamboyant like Floyd Mayweather. There was a mystique about Mike Tyson. The only time you could see Mike Tyson was on pay per view, big big money bouts, and the fact that he was going to be in a ring. And a ring that he was not comfortable being in was a huge deal. Uh, anyway, there was some speculation that, uh, when his
1: involvement is announced that Tyson is actually going to headline WrestleMania six against Hulk Hogan. And obviously that could never happen as Tyson wouldn't want to risk his credibility by losing. And the WWF wouldn't want to make wrestling look bad and have Tyson kill their golden goose, so to speak. Uh, but had this happened Bruce, is that like not as close as we can get to a 1990 equivalent of Floyd
2: Mayweather and Conor McGregor? Probably even bigger at the time, but yeah. there there's tape that exists. There we of go. Mike, of Mike Tyson in Tokyo, Japan, that Vince had a Japanese film crew that followed him around in Japan, and since there was a language barrier there. Vince, through interpreters, just told the camera guy, shoot Tyson, just don't ever stop shooting us. We're not going to start and stop because that just was getting too confusing. And the camera recorded all the conversation, recorded everything going on through this whole time. And one of the conversations that took place was Vince joking about, uh, goddamn, Mike, we got to get you in the ring. You know, got to get you in the wrestling. And, and Mike replying, "Oh hell no, I I ain't getting in the ring with Hulk Hogan. He's huge. He'd kill me." As a shoot, and Tyson just being absolutely because Mike was a huge fan. Mike was is a, a huge wrestling fan, and he loved Hulk Hogan, but he believed it. <laughs> he just thought he saw Hulk Hogan, and he saw. I kid you not, the Rocky movie and what, what Hulk did to Rocky (laughs) and like thought that that could be him, that if Hulk got his hand on hands on him, he'd kill him. So Tyson was, was not really, uh, big on getting in the ring with the Hulkster in any kind of competitive match. I don't, and I don't, vice versa. I don't think Hulk would have been (laughs) too happy to get in the ring with Tyson if he was throwing hands.
1: Uh, On the February 23rd main event, that same show with Buster Douglas Warrior is wrestling Earthquake, and Earthquake goes to jump off the second rope on him, but Hogan comes out and makes the save. A few weeks later on Superstars, Hogan is now wrestling Earthquake, and Earthquake hits him with the Earthquake squash, and the Warrior comes out and took Earthquake out, and then he and Hogan got into a confrontation of their own. Warrior starts to hit the ropes, and Hogan turned his back and starts to leave the ring, and Warrior raised his arm like he was going to clothesline him from behind, but Hogan turned him around, and they had a face-off. So again, Warrior's kind of teasing, at least to me, a little bit of a heel turn. We mentioned earlier that Savage did a phenomenal job promoting this main event show on Arsenio, and now it's Warrior's turn. So he actually makes an appearance on Arsenio on March 21st, And he's in to promote WrestleMania. We all know how well Hogan and Savage do at stuff like this. But, Bruce, how do you think that warrior did here?
2: I thought he was the shits. And the reason being is that Savage and Hulk, as human beings, outside of their characters, are pretty good guys. And they're personable. They're engaging. They have a great personality. And they could chat and make conversation with just about anybody and make it entertaining. Warrior was very difficult to have a conversation with, like a normal human being. And to put him in that environment where he wasn't doing those off-the-wall promos took him out of his element, and he was uncomfortable, and I don't think that he came off very well at all. That's just my opinion. I don't mean to shit on him. Well, you did. I I just didn't think he was very good. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh my god uh, this is the first and only time that Hogan ever challenged for the Intercontinental title even though you said he wasn't we all thought he was,
0: was champion there, versus champion title versus title
2: yeah
1: was there not any concern that this is sort of, kind of giving away the finish of the match since it's obvious that if Hogan wins he has to forfeit the Intercontinental title well
2: they both had to forfeit the intercontinental title, I guess.
1: But why would you, I mean, why why challenge for something if you're just going to give it away? God
2: damn. He's not challenging for the intercontinental title, goddammit. Champion versus champion.
1: We talked about in our NWO and the WWE show how there was a lot of surprise with how all the fans got behind Hogan in this match against Rock at Mania 18. Did you guys have any sort of concern that one of these guys would be booed in the live crowd, or did you think that they'd both be over strong enough where the crowd wouldn't necessarily shit on it?
2: Sure, we, we they had to pick them. You had to pick your favorite, and when you pick your favorite, the chances are you're going to boo the other guy. So you you run that risk <laughs> because somebody's not going to be happy when the Hulkster loses. Vice versa, they're not going to be happy when the Warrior loses. So it's it's risky.
1: Uh, let's get to the match. Warrior comes out first, and he runs to the ring, which is his normal routine. Uh, and Warrior said in a WWE release that he didn't want to ride in the cart, and he told someone in the office that he wasn't doing it. They tried to say, no, you have to. And he said, fuck it, I'm not doing it. And Vince agreed with Warrior. Do you have any memories of this sort of back-and-forth debate about whether or not to use the cart?
2: Vince had them both walk into the ring on their own. Vince had them both not using the cart from the start. So that's my recollection of it. There was never any intent. There was never any pitch from day one that either of those guys were going to go down in carts. I need you to explain
1: this line for me that Gorilla Monsoon used quite often and he used it here too. The irresistible (laughs) force meeting the immovable object.
2: Yep. That's exactly what it is. What the fuck is that? This kind of like steel hitting steel. I guess. Gorilla had a lot of those. Gorilla, man, I I was listening, just he had a lot of lines. I should have written them down because some of them were just doozies. That he would bury the baby faces without even meaning to. But Gino was Gino Uh, When they talked about the, they make the announcement for the house, and Gorilla says, I don't know, Jess, they say it's uh, 65,000. I think it could be maybe even 66,000. Gino. They just announced the fucking attendance. <laughs> At 67. Yeah, whatever it is. But he, he he increased it. Madison Square Garden holds uh, 18,000 people. We got 23,000 and 28,000 plus here in the garden tonight. Every time it would get bigger and just be the real number's impressive enough.
1: The real number that you say or the real number that Meltzer says?
2: Fuck Meltzer. <laughs>
1: Bruce, we've got to talk about this. Somewhere early in the match, the guys do a test of strength, and Warrior loses and goes down to his knees, and he has his head in front of Hogan's crotch, and he starts shaking his head kind of left and right like, no, I'm not giving up, and his hair is shaking around, and we can't see this from the front. We see it from the other angle. It's everywhere online. I know you know what I'm talking about. What was the reaction from the boys when they see this? It has to be well-received.
2: Ah, uh, He should blow him while he's down there. That's a better case. Fuck it. About what you'd expect.
1: Uh, somewhere in the match, Hogan goes to the outside selling a knee injury, and Gorilla calls it, quote, a temporary dislocation of the patella tendon. This comes on the heels of Sting suffering that knee injury. This is certainly a rib.
2: Oh my God! Did Sting dislocated his patella? What well, he, he he he? That's a rib that Sting's pulling because Gorilla says that nine million times during any television show. Gorilla always said that kind of shit.
1: Uh, they end up having a match beyond all expectations here.
2: Wouldn't you agree? Yes. And this is probably, in my opinion, Warrior's greatest performance ever.
1: You think this, even over his WrestleMania 7 match with Savage?
2: That was probably his second best. I think this was his best. Um, of
1: course, the Warrior pins Hogan after about 22 minutes. Uh, Hogan misses the leg drop, and Warrior hits him with a splash and gets the one, two, three. Uh, somebody told me, Bruce, and I call bullshit on this. Is this the first time Hogan's been pinned clean since 81? They said back then he's working as a heel and Tony Atlas pinned him, but this is the first time he was pinned clean in like nine years. Do you understand Hogan. that to
2: be the case? No, I don't think so. Because he worked in AWA, he worked in Japan all that time and, uh, working programs with Bachwinkle. and I don't know if it is or not, but I, I highly doubt it.
1: Did you, uh, there's lots of rumor and innuendo here that Hogan kicks out at three and a half, three and a quarter. Is that Hogan being a dick? That's what people would, would have you believe online. Why is that being a dick? Kicking out too late? I don't know.
2: A lot of people you're just... In a, you're in a match. You're trying to kick out.
1: Uh, did Warrior fly to Hogan uh, in Tampa to practice this match the week prior?
2: Yeah, they they were in Tampa, yes. I'm trying to think out where the hell they were. Um, we, we got them together in Stanford first and then I think the week before they were down in Tampa. Uh, Who's the agent who puts this together, Pat?
1: Yeah. Um, Pat Patterson has said that both he and Vince went out into the arena to watch the match, and when Hogan was pinned, they both had tears in their eyes. It was emotional backstage, to say the least, according to Pat. Um, Did everybody kind of have that feeling, seeing Hogan pass the torch, that this was – The end of an era, so to speak, and it was out of appreciation for what Hogan
2: had done that people were uh, shedding these tears. It was very emotional because Hulk had been the man and he had been the guy that had been carrying the company on his back for so long. And you're kind of seeing the end of an era. And I thought that he did it the right way and the way that he did the job and every everything that he did. So, yeah, it, it was emotional when you're so much a part of that to watch the guys and you know how much it means to them. Sure. Very emotional. I think that there were a lot of people that felt that way.
1: Pat Patterson tells a story of no one being able to find the warrior backstage after the match. And then he eventually found him in a broom closet crying alone. Uh, He was so happy to have accomplished this. Have you heard that story? Yeah,
2: I have. And, And Pat finding him and he was very emotional. One of the only times I've ever seen Warrior emotional.
1: Uh, Let's talk about post-match for a minute. It's been debated forever. Uh, After the match, Hebner gives Warrior both belts, but Warrior gives the world title back and chooses to just pose with the yellow IC for a minute. By the way, it's worth mentioning, a fan in the Bronx owns that yellow Intercontinental belt. He bought it from Warrior years ago. Uh, Anyway, Hogan comes in and gets the world title from Hebner and gives it to Warrior himself, and um, Warrior giving the belt back to Hebner makes me think this was the plan all along to have this belt presentation from Hogan handing it to Warrior. Do you know if the office approved that, or is this something Hogan would tell Warrior to do
2: on his own? Well, no. Hebner wasn't supposed to give him both belts. Hogan was supposed to get out and get the world belt and give it to Warrior.
1: That's the plan from the office.
2: Yeah.
1: Hogan had this to say in his book. Also, he had an interesting mystique about him. He talked about the mighty Warriors in heaven and stuff like that. He had a pretty good rap, but when he got in the ring, after he ran in and shook the ropes and stuff, he had no game. He had no wrestling psychology, and that's what it's all about, creating emotion. Great guy, nice guy, but really just a flash in the pan. Vince McMahon wanted Ultimate Warrior to beat me for the belt. I didn't agree with him. I didn't think this guy could carry the load. Then again, maybe I didn't give Vince a choice in the matter. By that time, my mind wasn't really focused on wrestling the way it should have been. Seven years of carrying the load as the main guy had taken its toll on me. I was tired, and I was starting to get hurt a lot. I was beat. I should have told Vince I needed a break. I should have said, hey, I'm hurt. Everybody else took time off. I should have looked in the mirror and said, hey, man, you're human. You can only push yourself so far. Instead, I kept wrestling and the more it ground on me, the more my attitude started to suck. So when Vince wanted to hand the title to ultimate warrior, it was because he could see that down the road to a time when he might not be able to depend on Hulkamania and need to switch gears. I agreed that I would lose the belt to the ultimate warrior, but I made sure we had one hell of a match. Just when it looked like it was over, I kicked out of his finish. Then I pinned him and he kicked out of my finish. At the end of the night, the referee was supposed to get the belt from the timekeeper and give it to the ultimate warrior, but this was my chance to steal back everything that he had just gotten from me. So I zipped over to the timekeeper and ripped the belt out of his hand. Then I walked to the ring apron with the belt, looked to God, shook my head yes, walked into the ring, and handed the ultimate warrior the belt. As I left the arena, 68,000 people in the Sky Dome watched me go. Ultimate Warrior held the belt over his head in victory, and no one cared. It turned out I was right about Ultimate Warrior. He couldn't carry the load as heavyweight champion, not the way Hulk Hogan had. Vince's attempt to move in a different direction hadn't been the success he'd hoped it'd be.
2: Your thoughts? Well, as far as the belt handing off at the end, there was always a plan for Hulk to go out and get the belt and present it to the warrior. And that's what we discussed in the production meeting. That's what we all had laid out. Um, So that was the plan. I mean, the plan was to give Hulk rest and to get him some time off and to bring him back and do the angle with Earthquake. So uh, Hulk's got his version, and that's what it is. He's the Hulkster.
1: When he's leaving on the ring cart, the camera shooting him a
2: lot. Yeah, on his ride back, um, we're telling the story about the immortal Hulk Hogan, and that's where we were where we christened him the immortal.
1: That is when Jesse Ventura has a line that says something like, "I do believe Hulkamania will live forever." That's right. that's a pre-scripted line, not Jesse freestyling. Yep. Allegedly, uh, after the pay-per-view Hogan was in the limo with Vince and others, but didn't say a word during the drive. Were you in the limo with him or did you hear about what went on inside of the limo
2: or can you poke holes in that room or an innuendo? Well, we were all staying in the sky dome hotel, which was an elevator ride up. So there's no limo. Not that I recall.
1: Okay. We
2: were, we were in the sky dome hotel It was an elevator down and we took a service elevator that got us into the Sky Dome itself.
1: Uh, did they have the WrestleMania after party in 1990 or is that not a thing yet? No. So what does everybody do? So after the show, everybody's finished and you're getting on this service elevator, everybody just goes to the room and goes to bed.
2: No, I go to the bar in the hotel.
1: Uh, was Hogan in the bar at the hotel. God, I don't remember. Was Warrior. Probably not. Warrior didn't, that wasn't his bag. What's the general feeling at amongst the boys at the bar afterwards? Goddamn, I hope it works.
2: You know, I mean, it's a high after a big show. I I think there were a lot of doubters thinking that Warrior wouldn't be able to carry the ball. Um, There was concern before WrestleMania whether or not he'd be able to carry the ball, so... You know, everybody is going to want to tear you down as soon as you get put on the pedestal. Everybody's trying to knock you down. So I'm sure there was a lot of second-guessing. But for the most part, you're coming off of a high, you're coming off of a big show. Man, have a drink, smoke a joint, have a good time.
1: Do you remember any of the boys or any of the office armchair quarterbacking the decision at the bar afterwards? Not that I remember, no. Do you remember there being any debate the day of the show with anyone in the office as to whether or not this was the right decision?
2: The only person that I really remember having issue with it and speaking to Vince directly about it was Ted DiBiase. And there might've been other guys that felt that warrior just wasn't the guy and wouldn't be able to, to carry the championship the way Vince thought he could and felt that, Vince saw something else in the Warrior in the, uh, that other people saw. Didn't see what Vince saw, put it that way.
1: What, um, what do you say to the folks who wanted a rematch? Why was there never a rematch in the WWF? I mean, we got one in WCW. and We all wish we could forget that. But why do you think it never happened here?
2: Well, monetarily wise, it wasn't a huge success. It, it didn't do as well as the previous year with Randy and Hulk. So I think Vince learned his lesson at that point, not really wanting to put two baby faces in the ring. The next time that we came close to that was Steve and Rock well, years let's, later. Let's talk but, about
1: that. WrestleMania 6 did a $3.5 million gate. And it did like a 3.8% buy rate, which is down from 5.9% the year before. But it's still well ahead of what you guys would do at 7 at 2.8. So let's break down the numbers. That means WrestleMania 6 did 560,000 buys, and that's down from 767,000 buys for WrestleMania 5. Uh, so you could certainly see a downward trend by more than 200,000 buys. But they would even lose an additional one sixty from six to seven because seven only comes in at four hundred. Um, I take it that you would con- you would believe that Vince thought that the number was a disappointment and didn't meet expectations financially.
2: It was a disappointment in comparison to the previous year. Yeah. Well, but I, think I mean, you take your two biggest stars and you put them against each other. The hope was that you would do better than you did the previous year. Business was good and it didn't. So you got to, you know, in Monday morning quarterback at all you want. It, it didn't do as well. If you had to do
1: that, if I mean, if you had to really say, well, if we didn't do that, we could have did this, blah, blah, blah. If you could have booked Savage Hogan two here,
2: do you think it would have done better? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of things you can say. What if, what if? I mean, we we didn't. Let's freestyle it. I don't know that there was a better attraction in the book. We know for sure Zeus was,
1: was, was dead to rights in November. Like the blooms off the rose, This is not happening. Um, who would that in August? Yeah. Who could it have been though? Mr. Perfect.
2: Perfect wasn't he wasn't drawing he wasn't he wasn't getting over to that extent that okay. he would have been able to to draw that kind of a number
1: so Zeus can't work Mister Perfect uh, we don't think
2: can draw so you we- take the you you got to look at what's drawing money and what else out there was drawing money the second biggest draw in the company was Warrior and that's based on merch and shit like that merch houses everything yeah
1: well houses were weak in January beforehand. And then they would put Hogan on, and they'd fucking do much better. Right. Um, all right. So let's have some fun here. Uh, do you remember ever hearing the story that the Torch ran a front-page story about a janitor at the at the Skydome? No. So let me catch you up. The Torch ran a front-page story that a janitor from the Skydome, who
2: happened to be a Torch subscriber... So this is where the Torch gets their information from a janitor in buildings?
1: ...hid in a bathroom stall... A couple of days before <laughs> WrestleMania, and overheard Tito Santana convince Vince McMahon to just let him put on the paint and armbands and pretend to be the replacement warrior and lose to Hogan because neither one of these guys wanted to lose. Well, Tito would lose, and he had a similar build to Hellwig. So McMahon had him put on the paint and the tassels, and in the bathroom, Decided, okay, we could pull this off. And around that time, the janitor slipped and fell. Vince heard him. The guy oh, scurries fuck away.
2: You. <laughs> fuck you. But, you know, I, 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 you had me with the part about uh, the torch getting their sources from janitors in buildings, because that's probably the most reliable sources that, that any of those guys have. Bruce. You're, you're ribbing me, right? I swear to God they printed that. Oh, fuck you.
1: Now, they did it as a rib, clearly. Uh, and they even said no. that,
2: that, that the, the part about the janitor and the source, that <laughs> makes sense. That makes complete sense for how those guys get all their stories. Well, I heard my friend has this this sister and her dad. His brother used to be a janitor at Skydome. He said this. Uh, Think how stupid that is. No, it's clearly a joke, but they did run
1: it. And so we got a a random question on that on a Love to Know episode once about Tito Santana and the Ultimate Warrior. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? And my research for this, I found it, and I'm like, okay, I see where it comes from. Clearly just a rib. Uh, The Greensboro jack-off was not involved. Uh, This all happened on April 1st, but sadly, uh, it was not an April Fool's joke. The Ultimate Warrior pinned Hulk Hogan clean to become world champion. And I've always found it a little interesting, the parallels that warrior's career ran with stings, considering they both started, you know, at the same time and they both wear paint and they both wear bright colors. Uh, well, they both win world titles from the two biggest organizations in the world, just three months apart. And they do so by beating the very biggest stars of the eighties, Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. Uh, of course, uh, Rick would lose to Sting at Great American Bash in Baltimore in July. Uh, I know you're going to argue this, Bruce, but was there ever any consideration to making Warrior the champ before Sting made the was made the NWA champ as to not be seen as copying the NWA? I mean, obviously, the WWF was always in a position to look like the innovator and not the imitator, but if you're going to put the belt on a younger, painted baby face. Wouldn't the WWF want to go to market with that
2: first and beat sting? Well, contrary to popular opinion and belief, Vince really didn't give a shit what they were doing. And that, that didn't, uh, that didn't really matter to him. He didn't, he didn't care to that extent. Did anybody in the office? It was just him and Pat that were doing it. So no, anybody that was making the decisions at that level. No.
1: I'm just saying, don't you think it would be a little funny if, um, you know, TNA ran an uh, all-cage match pay-per-view, and then the very next month, the WWF did the same?
2: Yeah, I doubt that the WWF or WWE is paying attention to what TNA is doing. And obviously, uh, a lot more people are paying attention to something to wrestle with than are paying attention to TNA. uh, Well, no shit. I mean, who's
1: not? I mean... Anyway, if you'd like to hear all about the fucking giant mess that is TNA, we have two episodes in our archives. We'd love for you to check them out. Uh, episode one has more than 700,000 downloads, which is a crazy number uh, for Brother Love and the Mortgage Guy, but that's also more than twice the amount of people who watch
2: their program this week. I believe it's more than three times that watch your program.
1: Uh, somewhere in early January, Vince made a handshake deal with Giant Bob at a co-promote and April 13th show in Tokyo. And on that show, Warrior would defend his title against Ted DiBiase, but Hulk Hogan is in the main event, and he's taking on Stan Hansen, who is a last-minute replacement for Terry Gordy. A few questions here. Number one, how over was Hulk Hogan in Japan in 1990? Huge. Hulk walked on water in Japan. Uh, did Baba make the call for Hogan to be in the main event as opposed to Warrior? Oh, Hogan. Yeah, but when they
2: made the deal, Hogan was the champion. Yeah, and they did not smarten up. Japanese promotion that Hogan would be dropping the title. Uh, How
1: was Warrior received by the fans and the Japanese talent?
2: I wasn't there, but the report I got from Ted DiBiase was pretty much they shit on him. The fans, the talent, both, everybody, yeah, just you know, different style, and Warrior didn't adapt his style to the Japanese style, and they. Just shit all over it, apparently. And I'm getting that secondhand, and, and that comes from Teddy. Uh, what the hell happened to Gordy? I don't know. I don't remember. I don't know if it was if it was something that Terry didn't want to do a job to Hogan, or I don't know what the hell happened to him.
1: Uh, after this, of course, Hogan would take that extended vacation. We touched on it earlier, but... Uh, the timing of this is twofold, at least in my opinion, Bruce, you know, giving him some time off, spend some time with the pregnant wife. Uh, but most of all, it's strategic to give the warrior a chance to do his thing without the fans, perhaps still preferring Hogan and therefore kind of cutting the legs out from under warrior before he has a chance.
2: Right. All the above. And, and Hulk had a movie to do too. I don't remember if it was, um, uh, what the hell was the name of it? Probably what suburban is- commando. No, suburb. Suburban Commando, I think it might have been. No, I don't know. But uh, nanny or one of those. Sure, yeah, one of those.
1: So Bruce, where do you, you rank uh, WrestleMania six all time? Not
2: That's the numbers, tough, just your opinion. Be, it would be in the top ten because because it was it was just such a huge event, and it was our first international. And it was first baby face versus baby face main event like that, so I think it it would hold up there in the top ten of WrestleManias.
1: He's on Twitter at Bruce Pritchard. I'm on Twitter at Hey Hey, it's Conrad. We'd love to have your feedback. Tell us what you thought of the show, and uh, we'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle with Bruce Pritchard.